Welcome to the Rethinker Podcast. This is a place where we're going to go deeper into Scripture, God's laws, Jesus' parables, and other aspects of faith to do, in certain cases, a rethink. Not in what God said, as some are attempting to do today, but really in why God said it. I believe that when we mind the why, the who comes into greater focus. This is a continuation of our last podcast, which uh, asked the question as to why did God go from one law in the garden to over 613 laws in the desert, if he's truly the same yesterday, today, and forever. What we learned that in the beginning, in our pre-fall state, the software, if you will, that ran the universe was perfect. There were no flaws. So man was given freedom in the software because there was nothing to harm him except for one thing. And that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we talked about how the tree was a portal holding back what were millions of carnivorous cockroaches that infested the system. And like a computer program that has now been filled with bugs, if God still wanted humanity to experience his intended freedom, as was his first intent, then the software had to be recoded to address the bugs. At the end of the podcast, we recognized that if I were to ask you what those bugs were, the natural response theologically would be sin. But much more entered the world at the fall than just sin. Sin on its own is not the only tragedy of man's fall. The other tragedy, and really the most damaging bug in the software system, is entropy. Now wait, what, what is entropy? Entropy is a principle that all physical forms are now, after the fall, in process of breakdown. That erosion, decay, and failure are the standards by which the post-fall software system is now governed. We see the effects of entropy through the line of Adam as the lifespan of his descendants grew shorter and shorter. And it is through entropy that we uncover a new purpose of sin. After the fall, death, decay, and decomposition were inevitable. Death had been given an unintended authority... But its timetable was not predetermined. Although death now controlled the final outcome, man is not deliberately going to run to death. Strategically, death and entropy needed a mechanism, a conduit to entrap humanity into willingly opening the gates of destruction and disease, decay, and decomposition. And that gateway was pleasure and feeling-based living. Pre-fall, God had given man the ability to experience pleasure. He even crafted the human body with various erogenous zones. But after the fall, pleasure could be used as a weapon. Pleasure was no longer free. Man's physical and emotional feelings could now betray him. What God had designed as a gift for humanity, which was pleasure, actually became a mechanism for his very demise. Man had been thrust into a world, endless world of possibility and endlessly uncertain outcome. Man didn't experience new freedom after the fall. Instead, he was bound by the freedom of his actions. And pleasure itself, keep in mind, wasn't the culprit. It was based on how and when pleasure was engaged. Because both the Christian world and the humanist camp really tend to focus on the initial actions of sin, whether that sin is promiscuous sexual activity, drug usage, pornography, drunkenness, or the like. The the humanist scoffs at the Christian for denying himself these pleasures that make us human, while the Christian bellows back, God said these actions are sin, and you will be judged for your unrighteousness. Both may have missed the strategic understanding. Though pleasure may be man's starting and ending point for certain sinful actions, it is not the end goal of sin. The Christian often runs from addressing the pleasurable aspects of sin, but it is only because sin is pleasurable that it can accomplish its intended goal. Sin uses pleasure, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life as its inciting mechanism. It is the lure by which to draw in its unsuspecting prey. Something as euphoric as pleasure must be sin's inciting mechanism because sin may begin with pleasure, but its intent is to end with entropy. Through the law of entropy, women eventually grow infertile, but using the pleasure of sinful promiscuous sex as the mechanism, a woman contracts a sexually transmitted diseases and faces the effects of infertility at 22, not 46. 
Through the law of entropy, the brain will atrophy with age, but using the pleasurable effects of narcotic ecstasy as the mechanism, sin forces a 16-year-old boy to endure the brain chemistry of a 60-year-old man. Through the law of entropy, the heart can eventually fail, but using the gluttonous eating as a mechanism, sin forces the heart of an overweight eater to arrest at 38 rather than 87. Through the law of entropy, on a genetic level, a baby can be born with debilitating birth defects and diseases. But using the enticement of alcohol or narcotics as the inciting mechanism, sin causes hundreds of thousands of more babies to be born with unintended birth defects. Through entropy, man will eventually die. But sin, using power, greed, and pride as the inciting mechanism, caused more than six million Jews, men, women, and children, to face ultimate entropy well before ultimate entropy would have occurred. We can now unveil a new portion of sin's strategic nature. Sin, using pleasure as its exciting mechanism, forces humanity to engage the laws of entropy faster than the system naturally intended. Forced entropy becomes the ultimate destructive bug, ransacking everything inside the system. Like a single line of bugged code, one action can create a calculated chain reaction wrecking havoc on all the other components of the system. Remember, though, God's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still wanted humanity to experience life as he intended, pre-fall in freedom, not post-fall in this new form of co-opted destruction. The system had not only been disrupted, it had been turned upside down, and it had been done by using one of God's greatest gifts to cause the acceleration. The bugs that now inhabited the system used mankind's own nature against him for the purpose of his own destruction. Now, if God is unchanging, then his open source system could and would continue to run as planned. It was, however, no longer impervious to these caustic bugs. So to circumvent entropy would have required the creator to intervene on the system itself. But in doing so, his system would no longer remain open source. In other words, God would have gone against his own nature to eliminate the bugs in the system. But the new bugs of forced entropy were not a new standard of the system. They were a deliberate strategy. That strategy was weakening and destroying God's greatest creation, humanity. Therefore, by writing new lines of code into the open source system through his creation, forced entropy could be contained and cordoned. When God went from one law in the garden to 613 laws in the desert, he was not restricting humanity with new legislation. He was recoding the system to circumvent the bugs that were using pleasure to produce forced entropy. What seemed like a dogmatic, restrictive ordinance was a loving, unchanging creator debugging a now flawed system for the sake of his creation to operate through the system's brokenness and currently destructive strategies. We can break it down simply by saying man, that man, since the fall, has wanted freedom in his actions, but he is now bound to its outcome. Once outcome wrecks havoc on man, man is no longer free with his future actions, and he's no longer free to experience the fullness of life individually, societally, and historically. Unfortunately, like the Rolling Stones chanted, man wants freedom in action. But God was concerned with freedom in outcome because it kept man to engage in future actions and therefore prosper exponentially. God restricted humanity from actions that had the propensity to produce damaging outcome, which in turn would create future bondage and shut off man from future action and prosperity. He wasn't restricting humanity. He was once again liberating him. Because the purpose of debunking the system was so that man can live a life of vitality, prosperity, holistic wholeness. God was protecting humanity from all of the damaging personal, social, and historical outcome that followed force entropy. Let's look at one of God's most seemingly dogmatic and even maniacal declarations in this light. Consider the following two commandments. 
Commandment 1, Leviticus 20.10. If man commits adultery with another man's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. To add, with that, we'll add the following statute, Leviticus 20.15. If man has sexual relations with an animal, he is to be put to death, and you must also kill the animal. Now, let's look at the first commandment first. It may seem understandable how one could perceive God as unloving and intolerant. After all, they were told to put the person to death for committing adultery. Today, adultery isn't even a crime, let alone an act worthy of extermination. On the surface, these statutes appear inhumane and certainly illiberal, and that really drives many people like Dawkins away from following the creator of these laws. But God, since he created mankind, fully understood both the laws of entropy and the intent of sin. To see this, we simply need to play out the failure to enforce these laws from a non-moral perspective. By allowing the Israelites to engage in extramarital activity, God would have allowed a trans primary transmission point of disease. Maybe the people would only contract and transmit moderate diseases from their promiscuous sexual activity. But now you factor in a man who engages in relations with an animal and contracts a life-altering, not to mention life-eradicating disease. Because promiscuous sex is allowed, the life-threatening disease he carries now passes quickly through the nation, resulting in forced entropy on a large majority of the society. A city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left. Amos 5.3 Now, are these laws too extreme now? Do we need to remind ourselves of the millions that have died or are dying from AIDS? The tens of millions of orphan children, soon to be an estimated 20 million in Africa alone, around the world who have lost their parents to the disease, and the hundreds of billions of dollars spent on AIDS research and medicine, all to find a cure for something that would never have occurred had our advanced society followed the rules outlined by our God's harsh and inhumane commandments. Without adherence to the law structure, sin has the freedom to run its course unhindered. Through an animosity towards religious hypocrisy and a brace of humanistic secularism, we've actually advanced beyond our ability to protect ourselves. Now, I understand it. But if we're looking to blame anybody, the pendulum swings much further towards the church than to the world. We, as salt, are supposed to be the preserving agent of our culture. Now, and this is critically important, do not assume that this means we're supposed to grab the nearest stones and pummel the sexual infidels among us or reintroduce ceremonial law into our modern culture. God gave man these laws not strictly to enforce them, but through their initial enforcement to understand and then expose the strategy of sin. God was attempting to unveil to mankind the conspiracy that had gripped him from the moment Adam sinned in the garden. The protection of the law was to expose the strategy of sin, not to use it to lord over others in some weird form of moral elitism. Considering the following scenario from Jesus' life. Teachers of the law, and therefore those that should have understood these strategies, brought to Jesus a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. The law we just spoke of commanded that this woman would be stoned. It was God's ordinance, and it was part of his plan for debugging the fallen world. Yet Jesus stated, he was out sin, cast the first stone, and left her forgiven and free. So what happened? Did God's nature change? Absolutely not. Then is Jesus a kinder, general, general, gener, gentler version of the supposed harsh, maniacal God of the Old Testament, as Dawkins would say? To answer that question is to view Jesus' actions from an entirely new perspective. If the goal of God's laws was the protection and liberation of humanity once again, then the system had to be followed perfectly. Entropy is not subjective. It is a very real, very dogmatic part of the fallen world. God was only dogmatic when he came up against the dogmatic and tangible outcomes of this combined combination of sin and death. If the teachers of the law were engaged in the same sins and had relegated these actions to mere moral failures, then stoning the girl would have had no effect on God's intended system of protection and liberation. 
Without following the debugging system to the letter, the teacher of the laws had turned it into nothing more than a moral code. And as a moral code, it was not only stripped of its intent, but it could no longer point back to its initial creator. It was never just about the letter of the law. It was about unveiling the God for whom the law offered liberation and prosperity to humanity. Once humanity recognized the prosperity found in the system and that system pointed back to its original creator, man was to give up his futile and destructive quest for sinful pleasures. Not because these actions weren't pleasurable, but because man now understood the strategy against him. Let me be clear, pleasure isn't evil, but pleasure engaged in outside of God's debugging system was being weaponized. Once mankind finally made this connection between sin, pleasure, and entropy, man didn't need the law to control his life. He was to follow it willingly, because to not follow it not only meant his demise, but also the loss of time, talent, and treasure through dealing with the effects of entropy individually, societally, and historically. That knowledge would have led man back to further intimacy with his creator, and taken it a grander scale, the scripture talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit having been with God in heaven pre-fall. And what does it say? Against such things there is no law. Still today, the very ones, us, the church, that are supposed to be the ambassadors of this debugging system often use it as little more than a moral code. And it's a moral code containing little power, even over its own people, if we recognize modern-day church attendee statistics, and with no semblance of an intended effect on all of humanity. This moral code not only limits the purpose and intent of the law, but it also distances humanity away from its creator. And for much of society, it appears to relegate the God of the Old Testament to Dawkins' description of a petty, unjust, unforgiving, megalomaniacal bully. Thankfully, though, we can now understand an even greater significance to this debugging system through the role of Jesus Christ. And in the next podcast, we will discover really how Jesus is truly the ultimate neo from the matrix. All right. Uh, like I said, we're going to go fast. Hopefully that was pretty fast. We're going to go even faster, but I uh, hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, there's a couple ways to get a hold of me. Best way is to go to davidwlitwin.com. There you can get kind of a 360 degree view of who I am, what I do, what I believe. You can reach out to me by email or Facebook or Twitter. You'll find all that information there. I love to interact with people. So please talk to me, uh, send me an email or hit me up on Facebook. I hope you have an absolutely inspiring day. we got one more podcast to go. I think it's really going to excite you. Hopefully this one just transformed your life as it did with mine. And uh, remember always, every single day, to live inspired.